Last week we had um, a time crunch because we had a lot of verses to cover. Today we have a time crunch because we have some real meaty stuff to dig into. So um, we'll, uh, we'll just dive right in here. Let's, uh, let's start with prayer and we'll get into the word. Father, we come before you as your children, um, thankful to know you through Jesus. We're so grateful for the forgiveness of sin that we have, that we can have a restored relationship with you because of that. Thank you for a beautiful morning that we have to come and worship together, to l- learn your word, learn what you have for us. We ask your blessing on our lesson. We ask your blessing on your word that it would transform our hearts to be more like Jesus today. We ask for our children's classes down the hall that you would work in them and that you would, you would mold them to be servants of Jesus Christ. For those that don't know you, we ask that you'd open their eyes today that they would see the, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ as personal to them and in their need for a Savior. And we ask this through Jesus. Amen. All right. The, um, the, the little black box that's in an airplane is something you hear about on the news from time to time. What's the, what's the purpose of a black box? When do you hear about a black box? When they crash. And why do they need the black box after they crash? It records a lot of flight da- data, right? So they it records is data or data. I I don't know. So, so that's that's the way it goes. It's a, oh, it's a dialect thing. I never focus on that. Um, so it records a lot of information about uh, the, about the flight and and it's mechanical information. And there's a voice recorder on it, so they hear what's going on in the, in the cockpit. Um, and they can kind of um, deconstruct what happened with the disaster. What was the problem? And we're seeing Saul, like, fly the plane into the side of the mountain slowly over these last few weeks. And if we had a black box, what would the black box be telling us about Saul? Well, that's chapter 15. Chapter 15 tells us what went wrong with Saul's kingdom, Saul's reigning over Israel. You may remember a couple weeks ago, back in chapter 13, Saul failed to wait for Samuel to come offer the sacrifice, and he went ahead and did it himself. And at that point, God took the kingdom's succession away from Saul's house. There's a little nuance here that I overlooked a couple weeks ago, and I want to bring out today. In verse 13 of chapter 13, it says, And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. So the emphasis is in that verse, in that chapter, is on the kingdom continuing. It's not as Saul as king. I was conflating the two, putting those two together. So what God is saying in chapter 13 is, you're not going to have a succession. You're not going to have a dynasty. It's going to stop with you. You are not going to have a continuing kingdom. But God stops short of saying, I reject you as king. But that's what we're going to see in chapter 15. That's about to change. So let's let's start reading right in verse 1. If I could have someone read the first three verses for us. Three verses. John, thanks. 
And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted that what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction <coughs> that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. All right, so we see a really brutal command that God gives here. This is not new. This is not something God has never done before, but it is a brutal command. Wipe out the people of Amalek. This is a whole people group. So who were these people? Um, back in Genesis 36, it says that Amalek was the grandson of Esau. So a couple generations removed from, um, from Esau and Jacob, but this makes the Amalek, Amalekites, makes the Amalekites and the Israelites kind of long-lost cousins. So they are short-tailed cousins. They're, they're related, but it's, it's way down the line. Here we see in, this, um, in these first few verses that God remembers something about Amalek and how Amalek had attacked Israel in the wilderness after the Exodus. Back in Exodus 17, um, it says that Amalek came and attacked Israel. It was their first battle out of Egypt, their first fighting situation. So as, as the Israelites were migrating out of Egypt and, and toward the Promised Land, the Amalekites come and attack them. And this, you may remember, is the, the, story, uh, the battle story of um, Moses holding up his hands and his hands get tired, and they drop, and when his hands are up, the Israelites are winning, and his hands go down, and the Amalekites start winning, and so Aaron and Hur hold up his hands, and Joshua and his men fight, and God gives the victory. And at the end of this, it says in verse 14 of chapter 17 of Exodus, God curses Amalek and tells Moses to write it in a book. I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Wow. That's pretty heavy. You can write this down, Moses, and I want you to write this down. I am going to blot out this people group. So why so harsh? Why is God reacting so heavily to this? We don't find out until Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 25, 17 to 19, shows us that Amalek had been attacking the stragglers. So you have this huge group of people, you know, million, two million people are moving, Israel's moving across the wilderness. And they're not all like in one location, they're spread out over a, a long distance. And, and if you're slow, you're going to end up in the back. And so the Amalekites were coming up and they were attacking the people in the back, this really despicable move. And so, so God says, the order is given, blot them out. And he says in Deuteronomy 25, don't forget, so this is like, okay, in, back in Exodus, write this down in Deuteronomy, don't forget. We're going to wipe out this people group. This is hundreds of years later that we're dealing with in 1 Samuel. But God has not forgotten. God has not forgotten what he said, what he promised would happen, this, these words of judgment. And so he tells he tells um, Samuel to tell Saul that he is to utterly destroy them, to devote them to destruction. Th these words are, are really clear when you look at other comparative um, verses in, um, in Joshua and Judges. 
It's to devote to destruction means to utterly destroy. It's to devote them to the ban, to completely destroy, to exterminate. Some really hard words that we see. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 2, Sion and his cities were devoted to destruction. And Moses records in that chapter, we left no survivors. So you get the picture of what's going on when it says to devote something to destruction? In Deuteronomy 20, God commands that cities near Israel be devoted to destruction. And he said, save alive nothing that breathes. Okay, this is not just people, this is animals too. Joshua 6 says that Joshua devoted Jericho to destruction. Men, women, young, old, even livestock. This is a heavy, heavy command. But God is completely clear. That's the point here. God is completely clear about what he wants Saul to do with the Amalekites. He wants to wipe them out completely as he had promised to do. It's time. It's time to fulfill God's word. We move on in this passage. And tragically, we see that Saul is not completely obedient. It seems like he is initially. So let's look at verses 4 through 6. Maybe we could have someone read 4 through 6. Yep, Temi, thanks. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in telling 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, go depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed all kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. All right, thank you. So Saul musters an army. We see a sizable army, 200,000 men from Israel, 10,000 from Judah. They go down to the city of Amalek. They are ready to strike. They encounter this other people group, the Kenites, who had actually been um, friendly to Israel as they were coming out of Egypt. And he says, listen, you guys need to get out of here because we're going to wipe out the Amalekites. And so the Kenites are like, you know, thank you very much. We'll, uh, we'll move on now. And they, um, they are excused. And um, then Saul moves into battle. Whoops, a little heavy on the trigger finger here. In the battle, seven to nine. Someone read those verses for us. Ty, thanks. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep of the oxen, and of the fattened calves, and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. So Saul starts well. It says that he has this wide-ranging victory in verse 7. He is defeating them from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. So a large um, geographic area that he is winning the battle in. And then it gives an assessment of his obedience. 
And we see immediately that there's a deviation from God's command because he took Agag, the king, alive, and the rest of the people were devoted to destruction into verse 8. But the livestock, well, it just depends what the livestock is like. And if it's good livestock, they keep them. And if it's bad livestock, well, you know, we can kill those livestock because they're, they're, you know, terrible. They're sick or, you know, skinny or whatever. And there's a problem here. There's a problem in that Saul has not obeyed completely. And who deviated? What does the text tell us that who deviated from the command? In verse 9, it says Saul and the people. So this is both of them. So why did they deviate? This is not rhetorical now. So why did they deviate from obeying God's command? Probably got your greed. Right. That's a good explanation. Touch, you have something else? Yeah, just the fact that they wanted the good stuff. They wanted the good stuff. Yeah. That seems to be what's implied by the fact that they would dispose of the bad livestock and keep the good livestock. And this is like a common scenario in battle. When you beat the other side, you take their stuff. At least that's how it worked in, in those times. So we're not told explicitly, but that seems to be implicit that they, um, that they would take the stuff. But why spare Agag? You want one slave? That seems dumb. We're not told this either, but... Trophy. Hmm. So the trophy aspect of keeping the king. So now you have this king who is servile to you, and you know it's you, know, you prayed him around or whatever. So what's the fundamental issue underlying that? What's the sin issue underlying that? Pride. That's right. So it's pride. So it, that that I think is probably the right answer. Is that Saul was proud and he wanted to, um, you know, t- take take Agag as a trophy. The people wanted to increase their wealth, and here we have incomplete obedience. So now we move on to see, in a longer section, God's thoroughly complete rejection of Saul. So verses um, 10 through 16, the word of the Lord came to Samuel. So Samuel evidently wasn't on the scene for this. I regret that I made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you of the Lord, for I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop, I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. So here we see this dialogue between um, Samuel and Saul. Uh, actually, but first, the dialogue between God and Samuel. God speaks to Samuel. The word of the Lord comes to him. And God regrets making Saul king. So why did God regret it? Because Saul had turned back from following God. In 1 Samuel 12, 14, Samuel 
in talking to the people about um, their obligations with respect to a king. Samuel told Saul and the people that they needed to follow God. This is the way he put it. And, and then obedience was part of following God. Here we see the writer makes it clear through what God said that, that Saul stopped following God. He took his own path. He didn't follow the path that God laid out. And that was, that was the problem. He didn't follow God's commandments. So this, this concept of God regretting something is a is a meaty theological topic. And we're going to defer it just a little bit to the end of the chapter because there's more about it then. So we're just going to keep moving so we get the flow of the whole story and we'll come back to that, that issue. So let's put a bookmark on that. We see Samuel's reaction to what God has to say, his first anger and then grief. <clears throat> I'm, I'm not sure why Samuel reacted in anger. Is he angry at God? Is he angry at Saul? Um, is he angry at the whole situation? It never should have come to this. Um, it's, not, it's not completely clear. I suspect he was angry that Saul disobeyed, that, that he wasn't um, completely um, obedient to God and his commands. Whatever the answer is, and however Samuel felt, it says in verse 12, he rose early. It's like, I have a job to do. God told me to tell, tell Saul this information, and so I'm going to go do it. He rose up early, and he goes to find Saul. And what does he learn along the way? He learns that Saul has set up a monument to himself. So again, a little bit more of that pride aspect that we see, that Saul has set up a, a, a monument, and it kind of leads us to believe that he thinks that he actually won this victory. When Saul sees Samuel coming, I wonder if he was surprised. Like, oh, I didn't expect him to be here right now. <laughs> But he's like, oh, I'm going to like just take the bull by the horns and I'm going to go and I'm going to speak first. And he goes and he says, you know, blessed be you in the name of the Lord. You know, I have fulfilled the Lord's command. Really? You fulfilled the Lord's command completely? Well, not exactly. And, so, and Samuel calls him on that and he does it in a very practical way. Everyone can hear the sheep and the oxen making noises. And so he says, well, you know, well, what are all these sounds if you have completely obeyed? And Saul then does what Saul does. He starts making excuses. And what are the excuses he makes? Verse 15. What, what excuses do he make? Yeah. Right, right, right. It's like, surely God will like use that as like an exception, right? I mean, so if, we're, if he said to, to kill something, but we're going to use it for a sacrifice, that's and eventually we're going to kill it. So, you know, that, that sounds like it, it, it is trying to cast it in like these reasonable tones, trying to re, re, recast the situation from being disobedient to being, you know, like enhanced spirituality. Like it's, he puts a spiritual spin on it. But who does he lay the blame at? Yeah, Hutch. The people, right? The people did this. The people wanted to do this. They wanted to offer the sacrifice, and so I, I, I thought that that was a great idea too. This, so this is reminiscent of chapter 13 when he went and offered the, the sacrifice. He said, you know, the people are dispersing, so I needed to offer the sacrifice. So the, the people are influencing the king. So this isn't leadership. 
This is the people influencing the leader. It's not the leader listening to the people. This is the leader bowing to the people's will. This is the leader fearing people. He spiritualizes the the excuse as best he can. Samuel's listening to it, and he's like, I've heard this story before. Stop right there. I don't want you to talk anymore because I have the word from God to tell you. And Saul, to his credit, says, speak. It's like you have to think that Saul knows that that there's a problem coming. So now, in verses 17 to 23, Samuel speaks. There's still some back and forth with Saul, but basically what we have here is a pretty good theological explanation of the importance of obedience. This is really the heart of the chapter right here in, in, in these middle verses. He starts out in verse 17, and Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, in other words, you used to be humble, Are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? You've been exalted by God. The Lord anointed you king over Israel. So he reminds him, he reminds him of what God has done and where he took him from. Verse 18, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. He reminds them of what the command was. Here is what you were commanded to do. In verse 19, He asked some pointed questions. Why then did you obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And these aren't rhetorical, at least Saul doesn't take them as rhetorical, because he answers, and Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. This is interesting. So in this verse, he says, I have obeyed. And then he explains how he obeyed. Well, what's the problem with this? He didn't actually obey, right? He didn't do what God asked him to do. So he is redefining what obedience is. He's saying, I didn't want to do what you said, so I'm going to redefine obedience. So I'm saying to you, I obeyed, and here's what I did, and I I brought Agag. You know, I, and I devoted everything to, to destruction. Well, it's like, you're contradicting yourself, Saul. God said to wipe out all of them, and you saved one. And you saved the livestock. Yeah, Cuffy. This is the way it should be, God. You know, this is a better plan. Back to that pride issue. I know better. He keeps blame shifting here. He accuses the people of keeping the spoil. This is, you know, just such out of his playbook. He has one play. Blame someone else. Who's king here anyway? So why didn't he tell the people to kill all the animals? Is he afraid of the people more than he's afraid of God? Does he want to please the people more than he wants to please God? Does he want the spoil for himself more than he wants God? Notice that Saul again refers to God as the Lord, your God. And I'm not seeing where that was. I thought it was verse 20, but I'm not seeing it. Oh, 21, end of 21. This, the sacrifice to the Lord, your God in Gilgal, not the Lord, my God. This tells us a lot about Saul. 
The pronouns we use matter, right? Samuel says, well, let me tell you. Verse 23, Samuel said, there's, you know, these famous verses. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as a sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Boom. He drops the hammer right there. He's saying, you disobeyed, God rejects you. God takes disobedience seriously. God takes sin seriously. So in these verses, what does God delight in? What are the things that God delights in? What does it say? What does the text tell us? Obeying the voice of the Lord. What else? In the verse 22, very last line of 22. Paying attention to the instructions. Paying attention to the instructions. Listen. In order to obey, you have to hear. So hear and obey. This is what people need to do. (coughs) Excuse me. This reminded me of Jesus' conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, 24 to 27. And he says, the wise man hears God's word and does it. He hears, he listens, and he does. He obeys. Listen and obey. This is what God wants us to do. What does God not delight in? He doesn't delight in outward conformity to ritual, going through the motions of worship, appearing to do what is right, but not actually being right. That is, that's what God doesn't delight in. When I was young, I used to get confused about this because I thought, well, God commanded burnt offerings and sacrifices. And so if you offer burnt offerings and sacrifices, aren't you obeying? And so how is that not obedience? That's not what this is saying. What the, so, it's what this, <clears throat> so this was not saying, ignore all of the ceremonial law that I laid out to Moses. That's not what this is saying. What this is saying is when you come to voluntarily offer a sacrifice, that doesn't take the place of heart righteousness. That doesn't take the place of obedience. God doesn't delight in, God does delight in obedience because the opposite of obedience is, don't say disobedience, it's rebellion. Rebellion. And rebellion, we know from Old Testament law, is like the sin of witchcraft. That's like playing with demons. So when we don't obey, it's as if we are entertaining demons being active in our lives. Whoa, okay, put it that way, it sounds pretty bad. Failing to obey is not just a mistake, it's not just an oversight, it's rebellion against a holy God. Whew. Do we take our sin seriously like this? Do we take obedience seriously like this? God is saying to all of us, keep your sacrifice, I want your heart. We come to worship together. If we put a check in the offering as sacrifice, but our hearts are wrong and we're not obeying the Lord in our personal lives, God's saying, keep your money. I don't want it. I want your heart. I want your heart to love me so much that you will obey me. That's what I want. 
This is what we need to teach our kids. It's, it's dangerous to grow up in a Christian home because you grow up in a Christian home and you're, and you're taught, do this and don't do that, do this and don't do that. And as you grow, you, you have this limited understanding of, you know, why are we doing what we're doing? Why are we saying, oh, why do we have to go to church on every Sunday? You know, why are we doing this? Why do I have to sit still in my, in my seat? You know, why, why do I have to go to Sunday school? And what God wants is those little hearts to say, I love you, God. I want you, and therefore I will obey. Not I will obey because I was told. This is the danger of second-generational Christians. This is me. I grew up in a Christian home, and I, I went through those motions, and I, you know, I was in church every time the doors were open because my dad was a pastor. And it was easy for me to equate doing things that looked spiritual to being spiritual, and it's not. God says, I want your heart. I want the man after, that it's after my own heart. So he wants the king that has his heart, not the king that has his own heart. He's going to reject Saul and choose David because of the heart. God says, keep your sacrifice. I want your heart. I want a heart that obeys. And then we see this final rejection of Saul as king. The end of verse 23, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. This goes beyond the dynasty, succession. This is Saul personally, that God is rejecting as king. And even though he doesn't take action to remove him as king, he has removed his blessing from him and his authority. And we're going to see Saul tumble after this. It's not going to be pretty. Saul hears this, and he is backpedaling. Verse 24, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Let's stop there for a second. How's that sound? I think it sounds pretty good. He's, he's, he's like straight up saying, I've sinned, I've transgressed, transgressed the commandment of the Lord. I didn't obey. That's what he's saying. And he identifies what his problem is. He knows what his problem is. I feared the people and I obeyed their voice. He's saying, I feared the people and obeyed them. I didn't fear God and obey him. He has his finger on it. But now, look what he says next, verse 25. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. He's like, I'm ready to move on. I've confessed. Let's go. Like, wow. The, the homework for this week, we jumped to this, and Ty and I were talking about this yesterday, and he suggested this homework, and I appreciated that. He, he said, like, have folks do a comparison of this verse, Saul repenting in verse 24, confessing his sin, with the way David confessed his sin. And you're going to see stark difference. David confesses sin and doesn't dictate what should happen next. Saul tries to dictate what's going to happen next. He says, return with me. In, in one sentence, he admits his fundamental problem that he feared God, but in the next sentence, he says, you know, but return with me. And why does he want Samuel to return with him? Because he fears the people. He wants the people to see Samuel side by side with him and standing in a unified front. He wants to save face. That's a great way to put it. His pride 
is saying, I need you to be there with me. Verse 26, and Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. He repeats the rejection. 27, as Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who's better than you. So it's like right here, it's like, okay, we have like this, this illustration that's just, you know, handed to, to Samuel where his robe is torn. And it's like, okay, you tear my robe. That is like God tearing the nation away from you. And then he like addresses his pride. He's given it to a neighbor of yours who's better than you. That'd be a tough thing to hear. So Paul's react, or Saul's reaction to his sin makes his confession look a little superficial, even though it sounded really good. We don't know Saul's heart, but God did, and he has already judged him. Samuel pronounces God's judgment. Initially, he refuses to be a prop for Saul, but he eventually um, he changes his mind. Verse 29, and also, listen to how he refers to God. The glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. 30, then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul and Saul bowed before the Lord. We don't know why Samuel changed his mind and actually did this. Maybe it was for the good of the nation. I don't know. Um, but Saul, again, repeats his confession, I have sinned. And he said, but honor me. You know, I, I'm all about getting honored because I'm the king and I should be honored. It says pride is just still in full bloom. Oh, Saul. But here's where we get to <clears throat> this concept of regret again. And so we see in verse uh, 29, and you know what? If you flip the thing over, it goes in the opposite direction. <laughs> All right, so let's deal with this concept of regret. How does God regret something? How do we understand this? What do we know about it? What does the text actually say? We see in, um, in verse 11 that God regretted making Saul king. Here we see in verse 29 that it says, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Drop down to 35. We haven't covered that yet, but look at what it says. The very last sentence and the Lord regretted that he made Saul king over Israel. So we have this situation where um, verse 11 and verse 35 say God regretted something, and then verse 29 says God is not like man, and he doesn't regret. Like, okay, how does this work? So we need to dive into it a little bit more. And so I'm going to offer a four-step analysis for this. Okay, it's a little bit complicated. This is, this is a thorny issue, and I'm, I'm not trying to, like, convince you, all right? I'm just laying out a way to think about this, and if at the end of it you say, I'm not convinced, that's okay, all right? So let's just walk through what this, how we approach this. So first, the first step here 
Oh, let me just read a quote from one commentator that I thought really nailed the problem. It said, It is surprising to read that the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, whose wisdom is unsearchable and who knows the end from the beginning, repents that his regrets or is sorry that he has made Saul king. Put another way, how, co- how can God be grieved over something he knew was going to happen? Hmm. So how do we understand this? So first of all, we start with what we know to be true about God. If we have a passage where we're not completely sure what's going on, we start with what we know to be true because it's clear in Scripture. So I'd like to offer a few things that are relevant to this topic. First of all, God is omniscient. He knows everything. We have many verses that talk about this. He knows the past, the present, and the future. He is not surprised when Saul is disobedient to apply that truth. We know that God is immutable. That means he doesn't change. He, we know that he makes decisions in eternity past that are irrevocable. That means they won't, will not be changed. They are certain to occur. Third point, God is without error. He doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't need a mulligan on the first tee of the kingship of Israel. Fourth, God answers prayer. We know that God answers prayer. We have multiple verses that tell us that God hears the righteous pray and acts in response to that prayer. It's a similar concept. So let's move on to step two. So we have this, this foundational, these foundational truths about what we know about God. So let's dig into the details of this now. What does the Hebrew word regret actually mean? Looking at other translations, the ESV which I've been using, is saying, I regret. The New King James says, I greatly regret. The NIV says, I regret. Starting to get the picture. The King James, older translation, says, it repenteth me. So, turns to the word repent. So, the King James is a little bit of the outlier, but it's not a modern translation. So, I think the understanding of regret is probably um, where we want to focus. Uh, The definition of this word by... um, scholars who actually know Hebrew, says that the word can mean repent. It means regret, to be moved, to be sorry, to to have pity, to have compassion. There's a lot of emotion in this word, but there's also a decisional aspect to it. So there's there's kind of two aspects of, of this regret. One is, I regret to inform you that this tragedy has happened. The other is a decision. I regret that I made that decision which resulted in the tragedy. There's two different aspects of it, two different nuances, and the way we determine it is based on how it's used. There's some literary devices that we could consider. I won't spend a lot of time on this. Um, You may have heard of anthropomorphism before. That means we attribute a human characteristic to God, like a man after God's own heart, well, God doesn't have a heart, he's a spirit, so, but it helps us to understand what it means. And then a literary device I had never heard of before, anthropopathism. So instead of morphism, which is form, we have pathism, pathos, which is emotion. So attributing human feelings to God. Genesis 6.6 6 says it grieved God in his heart. It grieved him. But we can't just stop at chalking this up to literary devices, I don't think. And so we move back to the text and see what the specific, immediate context of the usage of this word is. So let's look at verse 11 quickly. The immediate context of this verse is God's revelation revelation to Samuel 
that Saul has sinned. He failed to obey God's command. And that results in both God and Samuel mourning. They're grieved. We hear God's sorrow at the sin. He's not callous to Saul's sin condition. God is not taking a you win some, you lose some with your decisions kind of approach or a, well, let's try that again approach. And he is not disappointed at his prior decision. He's grieving over God's, he's grieving over Saul's sin. The emphasis in verse 11 is that emotional aspect of this word grief. Go to 29. The immediate context of the verse is God's decision to rip the the kingdom away from Saul and to give it to someone else. So here we see the emphasis on the decisional aspect of regret. This decisional aspect is irrevocable. This will not change. He decided that Saul will no longer be king, that the kingdom would no longer be in Saul's line. He's not trying to manipulate Saul into obedience. He's telling him this is what is happening. Once God decides what is done, what's going to be done, it's done. It doesn't really matter the time of that decision. Go to verse 35, the last usage. The immediate context there, if you look right before the sentence I read, you'll see Samuel grieving again and the Lord regretting. Again, you hear God's sorrow from the connection with Samuel's grief. The writer of the book, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, seems to be wanting us to see this paradox and to understand that there is, there is a big God behind this. So in summary, we see a God that is both consistent but sorrowful. He's unchanging but merciful. He's firm but has feeling. He has complete, he's beyond complete understanding. So as I said before, I'm not trying to convince you, I'm trying to lay out a way of thinking about this. And I, I have a couple of articles about it. If, if you want to you have further reading, I'd be happy to share those with you. But here is, here's the way I'd like to wrap up this part of the lesson. Our human minds are not God's mind. Sometimes in our own pride, we think we have to understand everything about God. But God has revealed himself to us in his word, but he hasn't shown us all of himself because it's impossible for us with our tiny little human brains, to understand everything about our magnificent God. And we see this in other aspects of Scripture. How, do, how, does, how does free will and election work? Well, there's verses that say both in Scripture, so yes, they work. And if I say, well, it has to be this, I'm saying, I'm so proud that I think I have the answer to the regret conundrum. God's bigger than that. So God, our God, is someone whose character is magnificent, and we may not completely understand that. And are we okay with that? Are we okay not completely understanding God? Yes, he's revealed himself. He wants us to know him. But he is more complex than any human being that has ever lived. So what will we do with that? Will we look at this paradox and say, I think it's inconsistent, so scripture must not be true, and I reject the whole thing. That's, that's Saul. That's, that's pride saying, I have to understand it in order for it to be true. That's not the God that we serve. The God that we serve is so much bigger than that. And I've consumed my time, and we haven't concluded the chapter, but 
I'll let you read the rest of the chapter yourself. Whoops. Saul does com- Samuel completes the mission for Saul. There's a graphic verse that says Samuel hacked Agag to pieces. Oof. Everyone, everyone goes home after that. Again, do we take our sin seriously enough to deal with it like Samuel dealt with it? That's how we need to deal with it. So if I could just advance to the final point. What is this chapter saying to us? That obedience from the heart pleases God more than voluntary rituals. Don't go through the motions of worship. Worship God because you want to obey him. Let's pray. Father, we are so small and you are so big. We just ask that you would use the truth of this passage in our lives to make us more like Jesus and to to just worship you more because of how great you are. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.